Good evening. So last night I briefly touched into the overall theme of this retreat, which is freedom here and now. And I mentioned that this freedom can be known any time that we're able to release clinging, craving, and or resisting experience. And there's a lot to explore in that one statement. And I will be going into it more fully over the coming days. So for tonight, I want to start by sort of zooming into one particular aspect of experience that is often a source of struggle on retreat. And that's our relationship to our mental experience, our thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states. So this morning I mentioned how insight meditation rests on two particular qualities of the mind which are developed together, sati or mindfulness and samadhi or stability of mind, non-distractability. And in the suttas, how these two are talked of, it's like the two hands that wash each other. And we can see from that image that we need both to be able to wash our hands. So although we need both, usually at the start of a retreat, uh, we come in with pretty scattered and agitated minds. So the beginning instructions usually put a lot of emphasis on bringing the mind back to the breath whenever it wanders. But we're not always told why we want to do this. And it's easy to develop the misperception that meditation, mindfulness, is all about paying attention to the breath, the whole breath and only the breath. And then to compound that misperception, we're told that if we notice the mind has wandered into some kind of thinking, we should come back to the breath over and over and over. So it's very easy to develop the misperception that thinking is a problem and shouldn't be happening. So partly as a result of those preliminary instructions, I meet a lot of meditators who believe that mindfulness is just about paying attention to the breath. And if the attention is anywhere else, and definitely if it's on some kind of mental activity, and this is not real meditation. So with this basic misunderstanding of what mindfulness meditation is, people can unconsciously turn their meditation practice into a battle, a battle with their own minds, trying various, usually unsuccessful strategies to try to stop their thinking. And then to make this struggle even more problematic, most people are already at war with their own minds in various ways. So battling with all kinds of afflictive thoughts and emotions, so much so that when we hear all this Buddhist talk about ease and happiness and peace and freedom, it can feel like a cruel joke. So tonight's talk is called, is called Befriending the Mind befriending the mind and there's a bit of an implication in that title that the mind is not always our friend and yet for many people it's the sense of inner struggle with the mind that brought us to start meditation in the first place and often people do begin with a vague hope that we're going to be able to somehow get rid of that relentless stream of thinking that torrent of mostly unpleasant mental activity that seems to start the minute we wake up and often torments us all through the night too. What commonly happens though when we sit down to meditate in silence is that not only does the thinking not go away, it can seem to get even louder and more insistent. And at this point, beginners will sometimes tell themselves either that meditation doesn't work or they can't do it. And to me, it's quite tragic how often I hear people say something like, oh, well, I can't meditate because my mind just doesn't stop thinking. But that's not what this kind of meditation is about. And while not thinking might be the goal of some types of meditation out there, it's not true of insight or vipassana practice. 
Fortunately for us, insight practice is not about trying to make the mind stop thinking, which, as I'm sure you know, not only doesn't work, it just creates stress and aversion in the mind. Instead, what we're trying to do is cultivate a wiser relationship to it so that ultimately we are able to free ourselves from all unskillful and afflictive states of heart and mind. So it's not surprising, though, that people do tend to have this unconscious belief that meditation is not about thinking, is about not thinking. Because, as I'm sure you know, these days meditation is uh, very popular and it's being used to sell everything from margarine to life insurance. And there are a lot of images in mainstream media and in advertising and on TV and in magazines that usually involve a young and skinny blonde girl sitting in this exaggerated kind of posture with a beatific smile on her face and the implication that there's not a thought in her mind. And that image gets kind of taken in as some kind of goal that we should be working towards. And surprisingly, even very experienced meditators can have a deep-seated and unconscious belief that real meditation is what happens when the mind stops thinking. And I have to acknowledge that, again, because of the beginning instructions on retreat, it's not surprising we would think that. So the sort of generic beginning instructions are something like sit down, pay attention to the breath. When the mind wanders, bring it back to the breath. Don't get involved in the thoughts, just come back to the breath. Come back to the breath, come back to the breath. Anybody heard instructions like that? Maybe even just this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I've heard those instructions because I've been giving them variations on that for the last couple of days. But what happens if we keep doing shorter retreats, those Uh, instructions are all we hear and again it reinforces that belief that thinking shouldn't be happening because what's usually not made so clear is that those instructions are given as a means to calm the mind and stabilize the mind so that we can develop just enough samadhi that the mind can then stay present with every other aspect of our experience too Not just the breath, but sensations in the body, as we were working with this afternoon, and feeling tones, and all kinds of mental activity, including our thoughts, our emotions, our moods, our mind states, and crucially, our attitude to our experience, how we're relating to it. So knowing whether there's a background attitude of wanting and greed, or not wanting, aversion, resistance, or not knowing, ignorance. So this is in line with the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And we've already spent quite a bit of time on mindfulness of the body. Tomorrow we're going to be exploring mindfulness of Vedana, or feeling tone. So tonight I'd like to, in a way, leapfrog into mindfulness of the mind, which is the third establishment of mindfulness. And we've already touched into just how important the Buddha saw bringing awareness to our own minds when I quoted the opening lines of the Dhammapada the other night. Perhaps it was even just last night. So as a reminder, I'd like to read that passage again, this time just in a slightly different translation by Thomas Byram. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, 
and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. In some ways, that's quite obvious, at least in theory, that our thoughts, our emotions, our moods and mind states have a powerful impact on how we experience our lives for good or for ill. But practicing mindfulness of the mind is easier said than done, partly because our mental activity tends to happen so fast. We don't even realize what's been happening in there until we find ourselves in the middle of a painful conflict or some kind of interpersonal drama or perhaps on a 24-hour weekend Netflix binge. And then, in the beginning, mindfulness of the mind often involves what I jokingly call post-mortem mindfulness. So this is when we have to look back after the fact, after something has gone awry and try to identify what were the thoughts, the emotions, the moods, the mind states that led to that uh, triggering of some kind of afflictive reaction. But even post-mortem mindfulness is better than most no mindfulness because with the information that we get from it, hopefully next time, if we're starting to go into a similar reaction, we might catch it a bit earlier and then a bit earlier and then a bit earlier until eventually that same trigger doesn't have any effect at all, or perhaps even gives rise to skillful states instead, such as kindness or compassion, appreciation or equanimity. So the speed of thinking is one challenge in this process of befriending the mind. The second challenge is that without some kind of mindfulness training, without this invitation to practice the bare awareness that we've been cultivating these last few days, most people tend to take their thoughts and emotions pretty personally, to believe them to be true, to be real, and to be who I am. Though in English, of course, we just commonly say, I'm so angry. I'm so depressed, I'm so bored, I'm such a failure, and so on. Instead of being able to recognize, oh, anger has arisen. Anger is like this. Tightness in the jaw, buzzing in the mind, painful, vengeful thoughts. Oh, moment of self-compassion is like this. Slight sense of release is like this, and so on. So this quality of bare awareness that we're cultivating here is very different from the usual way we relate to our minds. Without any mindfulness training, most people either pay no attention to their thoughts at all, unless they've gotten them into some kind of trouble, or they believe their thoughts completely and take them to define who they are. So on the one hand, we tend to wrongly believe that thoughts are not important, and on the other, we can tend to take them far too seriously. So I'm guessing all of you have had the experience, perhaps even for some of you on today, of being in a state of relative ease, feeling okay, maybe even slightly happy, And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, some random thought flits into the mind and it feels like the whole world shifts and we get caught in all kinds of painful, unpleasant emotions, sometimes for hours, because of one random firing of neurons in the brain. So we know for ourselves what happens when we don't pay attention to the mind and just let it run with whatever happens to flip through it. But as our mindfulness gets stronger, we can start to understand, to see more and more quickly that thoughts are just thoughts. In and of themselves, they don't actually have that much power. The only power they have is the power we give them. So the more solid we make them, the more weight we give them, the more seriously we take them, to that extent they cause stress and distress. The opposite is also true. 
the more we can know our thoughts as just thoughts, the more freedom we have to choose which ones we respond to and which ones we simply release. And the good news is that challenging thoughts or mind states are a normal and expected part of the practice. It's not that we have to slog our way through them for decades before we get any benefit from the practice. We can actually use them as fuel for it. Because as we learn how to meet these painful states with mindfulness and kindness, eventually we learn how to release the unskillful states and strengthen the skillful ones. And I'm pretty confident that every one of you here has seen that shifting balance from primarily painful and afflictive states more in the direction of pleasant and skillful states. So if you think back, if you can, for some of you this might be quite a few decades, to a time before you started meditating, Overall, would you say that you experience less afflictive mind states now than you did back then? Is that true? Even if it's only been a year or two two years. And would you also say that those afflictive states happen less often, so the gaps between them last longer? And if they do come up, they're not as intense? And if they do come up, they don't last as long. Is that true for most people? So that's the general trajectory of the practice. And we can trust that the more we keep exploring this path, the more that process will continue. So we're going to be working directly with thoughts uh, either today, uh, tomorrow or the day after. But just to say a little bit about what I keep referring to as thoughts, emotions, moods and mind states, that's just a little bit of a shorthand to make a very general distinction between different aspects of our mental activity. So by thoughts, I'm using the word just as we normally do in English to mean any kind of mental thought process any experience that doesn't have much of a physical or bodily aspect to it, but is mostly experienced in the mind. So these mental experiences are known in different ways by different people. So for some people, thoughts appear as sort of words in the mind. For some people, they're more visual and they get a lot more images in the mind. We can hear music and other types of sounds and we can have dreams and all of these are classified as different kinds of thought. And usually thoughts come and go pretty quickly. And then there are emotions, which although they have a mental component, they also have a physical aspect to them too. So they're often experienced as a mixture of sensations in the body and mental activity in the mind. So, for example, a common one, anxiety. If we pay attention to the body, we might recognize a sort of a hollow feeling in the chest or a fluttery feeling or clamminess in the hands or shallow breathing. And often these physical sensations are accompanied by a rush of mental activity, a lot of thought thinking usually about the future, a lot of agitated thoughts. And that can amplify and intensify the physical discomfort, which in turn amplifies the mental discomfort. And so with emotions, there's often a feedback loop between the body and the mind. And they usually last a bit longer than thoughts, which are just very transitory. So emotions are feelings that come and go and they're usually relatively easy to recognize because they have some intensity to them as distinct from moods which are more in the background they're coloring our experience and because they're in the background they're sometimes a bit harder to see and often too they're sort of a composite of different emotions sort of all mushed together 
So it's not always easy to recognize with moods exactly what's going on. So, for example, in English, we can talk about being in a bad mood. Well, what do we actually mean by that? If we look more carefully, we might notice that there's a perhaps a, a low-level feeling of mild depression. Or perhaps that's accompanied by overtones of irritation or frustration. And sometimes there are twinges of self-judgment in there. And usually a whole pile of resistance, unconsciously trying to get rid of the unpleasant experience. So as I was writing that description of what a bad mood was, it started to remind me of the way wine lovers describe wine. So soprano winery merges a disguised pickle midtone and a caramelized undertone of sushi in their 1999 Bordeaux Bernays. So I found that description on a website that generates fake wine labels. And so we can think of our own bottled emotions in a way as different kinds of strange wine and learn to recognize the different flavors, the different nuances, sour mid-tones with a belligerent yet anxious aftertaste. <laughs> so it's good to be able to laugh at our inner states so that we're not dwelling in them, but we're getting more clarity about their different components all in the service of helping them to release. And then lastly, we have mind states. And this last one is a kind of general category that includes other types of mental experience that don't fit easily into the categories of thoughts or emotions or moods. For example, there are mental qualities such as alertness or dullness, concentration or distractedness, interest or disengagement. And these are recognizable, discernible qualities of the mind, but they don't necessarily have an emotion to them or particular thinking with them, not a lot of mental content. And often these mind states are sort of below the contents of the mind, the surface level of the mind. So to, just to touch in, to get a little bit of practice with that, you might even right now see if you can notice as you're listening, is there any particular mental quality that's discernible now? Might be alertness or in some cases dullness, dullness, boredom, interest, curiosity. Ease, balance. Maybe I should do this as an auction. How about, how about interest? Yep, a bit. How about stability of mind? Yeah. How about openness? Yeah. So it's just fun sometimes to just sort of tune in and get below the surface level of the contents of the thoughts and see is there a, a broader or deeper mental quality that's happening. So those of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta might know that in the third establishment of mindfulness we are invited to recognize when particular mental states are present and when they're absent. And again, I'd like to read you, if I can find my glasses, a few lines from that sutta, because, again, the language is a little bit complex, but it gives us more nuances to hear the actual words. So it starts, How, practitioners, does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? Here, one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. 
One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. Then it goes through a few more examples and finishes with one knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So there's a lot in there again, but the first three mind states that are pointed to are lust, anger and delusion. And these are three slightly different translations of the core afflictive energies I mentioned the other day of greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or delusion. So in this section on mindfulness of the mind, we're training in recognizing the presence or absence of these three basic afflictive states. And then there's a progression to more refined and subtle states. So knowing whether the mind is contracted or distracted, finishing with knowing whether the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated, liberated or unliberated. And there's a couple of aspects of the language here that I want to highlight. The first is that it's completely impersonal. The Buddha doesn't say, notice when you are lustful or angry or deluded. He doesn't even say, notice if your mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. He simply says, know whether these mind states are present or absent. So right there is the invitation to understand that these mind states are arising due to impersonal causes and conditions. We don't need to identify with them. We don't need to hold on to them. We don't even need to get rid of them. All we're instructed to do here is know if they're present or absent. That's all. So the language is completely impersonal and it's also completely impartial. There's an attitude of equanimity or non-reactivity built into this approach to looking at the mind. So throughout the list, there's a rhythmic investigation from two sides. Is a particular mind state present? Is it absent? And this is a very different way from our usual way of relating to mind states, where most of us, I think, have a tendency to only see one side of the equation, to notice when a mind state is present and not to notice when it's absent. And more specifically, most of us have a bias to only notice when a difficult mind state is present. I think you're all familiar with the neuroscience understanding of the mind's inherent ne negativity bias and Rick Hansen's famous quote about Teflon and Velcro. You know that one? The mind is like Teflon for the pleasant and Velcro for the unpleasant. So the mind is, in, to some extent, hardwired to pay more attention to what's painful, afflictive, and threatening. And so it tends to emphasize all the unpleasant experiences and filter out or ignore pleasant experiences. So here, with this third establishment of mindfulness, this can be a very powerful training to go against our usual unconscious biases. It's an invitation to start noticing not only predominant unpleasant states, but also more subtle, refined and skillful states of mind that are often just below the radar, including wisdom itself. So I want to go a little bit deeper now into what this term wisdom is pointing to particularly in terms of our mindfulness practice in the service of insight. Because in some contexts, uh, this framework of uh, insight, mindfulness is taken out of that context, and it's presented more as an antidote to 
mental and emotional distress, which of course it is. Mindfulness is very powerful for that. But in the context of these teachings, mindfulness also has the capacity to stop those states from arising in the first place. And it does this through supporting insight, through supporting clear seeing into the truth of how things are. And there are three particular aspects of the truth of how things are that are particularly freeing. The first is the truth that everything is constantly changing. Because it's constantly changing, nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. And there is no fixed, permanent, solid entity to call myself at the center of it all. So those of you who are familiar with Pali terminology, you might recognize anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not-self. Or to use slightly different language, these three point to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. Everything is constantly changing. It's impermanent. None of it can give us lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And none of it is our fault. It's impersonal. So the more deeply we see into these three characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, the more we suffer. So I'd like to look into them a little bit more deeply now to see how they apply to our practice of freedom. The first one, impermanence, is a powerful ally in reducing all afflictive mind states when we can consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change. So for example, if some form of anger or fear or greed starts to arise, Instead of struggling to avoid it or get rid of it, one option is to simply ride it out, knowing that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because of the truth of change, at some point, the painful state will disappear of its own accord. And understanding this helps us to reduce the grip of trying to control the state. However, there's a very common tendency with afflictive states to tend to collapse into them and unconsciously to make them feel more solid and permanent by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So when I was talking about the fourth precept the other night and paying attention to our inner dialogue, sometimes when we do this, when we bring mindfulness to the mind, we can and we really pay attention to what we're telling ourselves, we often hear statements like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any relief. I'm in a state of constant misery. So words such as always and never are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking. Some of you may be familiar with that. And this is an unhealthy thinking style that's been linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So it can be helpful to sort of keep the inner radar out for words like always and never. And try changing the language if you do notice them coming up to something that's more accurate, that's more in alignment with reality. So instead of, I'm always anxious, try telling yourself, under certain circumstances, I do have a tendency to feel anxious. Or when anxiety is strong, it gets more difficult to experience relief. So you might notice those statements are just a little bit more nuanced than saying, I'm always anxious, I never experienced relief. And even that slight shift in the way we talk to ourselves about it can help to lessen the grip of it slightly. 
Sometimes, though, when I suggest this to people, they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that their anxiety is always there. It's constantly present. It has been forever and it always will be. So that's an example of identification, just as a sidebar. But one tool that can be helpful to challenge this misperception is to quantify the intensity of the anxiety on a scale of 0 to 10, a bit like they do in um, physical health. If you go to a doctor's surgery, they often have that chart on the wall with 0 being no pain, and usually there's a smiley face down there, and 10 being the most acute pain with a frowny, crying face. So in terms of our mental states, we can think of 10 as being the most intense anger or fear or whatever it is, and zero being completely calm. And so when I ask people who tell me that some state is constant, I ask them to tell me, just to notice through the day, was it at a 10 the entire time? And usually they can say, actually, no. Sometimes it dropped down to a 7. And sometimes I'll say, how about right now? Oh, it's a three. It might go up to a seven again, but just to be able to see that what we think of as solid and permanent is actually constantly fluctuating. The other benefit of that practice is it can help us to be able to recognize when the afflictive state is low, how does that feel? Because again, due to the mind's negativity bias, most of us are much more sensitized to unpleasant states than we are to pleasant ones. And yet as the practice develops, we need to refine our mindfulness to be able to recognize how does equanimity feel? How does ease feel? How does contentment feel? How does calm feel? How do you know when those skillful states have arisen? So the second of the three characteristics is dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection. And strangely enough, this is also a powerful ally in decreasing afflictive states, even though it's a hard one at times to accept. The truth that not everything is going to be okay all the time. This is the first noble truth in the Buddha's teachings, just that there is unsatisfactoriness. And yet we're so consciously or unconsciously driven to try and make everything all right all the time, and not even all right, perfect. And most of us spend a huge amount of time and energy trying to control our external circumstances trying to make all the conditions around us and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, then everything will be okay and then I'll be happy. And yet in spite of all of that effort, not many of us can say that we have experienced the lasting happiness that we've been hoping for which is not to deny that there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But because of the overall truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, they're constantly changing, they're incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And unfortunately, often there's something about the truth of dukkha, of imperfection or unsatisfactoriness, that can sometimes trigger us into even stronger perfectionism and idealism and efforts to control ourselves and others. And often we bring that same perfectionism into our Dharma practice, unconsciously turning this whole thing into a giant self-improvement project, one that's rooted in self-aversion, and resistance to the truth of dukkha. And this can fuel a sense of lack and inadequacy in the form of comparing mind. I'll come back to that point in a few moments, but it's not to say that by acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness that we just give up completely. 
resigning ourselves to just being driven by painful emotions and moods and mind states because, well, it's all just dukkha anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. So developing a more balanced relationship to afflictive mind states comes as our practice matures. And then we can look at our look at ourselves non-judgmentally and discern which of our motivations we can change and also to accept whatever patterns we can't in that moment change. So when it comes to afflictive states, we need to pay attention to any resistance to them, any expectation that they shouldn't be happening. They're wrong, they're bad, they're a problem to be got rid of ASAP. And instead we can orient to the understanding that because we're human beings with vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds, we are susceptible to greed and hatred and delusion at times. This is normal and natural. And I don't know a human being alive who is completely, utterly, 100% immune from them. And yet, even though we might understand this in theory, most of us have the tendency to take our afflictive mind states very personally, to see them as our own unique shortcomings, our own unique weakness, our own unique neurosis, which again, in terms of wisdom, of insight practice, is a serious distortion of the truth. So now we come to the third of these three universal characteristics, which is anatta, usually translated as not-self. And this is the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid sense of self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way. So the truth of anatta can be understood on deeper and deeper levels, and it's not generally something that can be grasped by the intellect. It generally requires the kind of stillness and balance of mind that happens in a retreat setting. But even on a conceptual level, it can be helpful to understand anatta. So when we can see clearly how we're constructing our own stress and distress, then it's easier to deconstruct that whole chain reaction. And it starts with the practice of bare awareness. So this training in non-reactivity is what the Buddha talked about as not adding the second dart or not adding the second arrow. You might know his famous discourse about the man who was shot with an arrow. And obviously that's a painful physical experience. But then the man went on to grieve and sorrow and lament and weep and beat his breast, is what it says, with mental reactivity. And so the Buddha said that's like adding a second dart. But someone who has meditation training has more capacity to just stay with the immediacy of the physical pain and not get caught in mental reactivity to it. So I often joke, though, that we don't stop with two arrows. We usually add 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 to the initial wound. And so this training in bare awareness is really about not letting those extra darts be fired. So again, this uh, might sound challenging, but in terms of looking at our afflictive states, we can see anatta in action every time we release those statements that begin with I am. I'm a highly anxious person or I'm an aversive type or I'm a trauma survivor. And it's not to negate that those statements have some truth. But when they're expressed that way, and especially if they're expressed multiple times, they can collapse into just one way of being in the world and can create a sort of self-reinforcing identity. So again, looking out for this phrase, I am, in our inner language can be very interesting. I did that as a practice a few years ago when I started to really notice 
myself telling myself certain statements, often with quite a charge. I am such and such. I am this. I am not that. And so I started listening out for the I am preface and just noticing whether what followed was actually true or not. And it was pretty shocking because it was almost never completely true. At best, it was partly true, temporarily true, but it was never the definite fixed statement that I was telling myself. So again, that's uh, when I saw this and I thought, well, I think that I'm supposed to be um, keeping the precept of right speech, but here I am telling myself these things that are not actually factually true. So just noticing where we tend to collapse into solidifying and making an identity around some particular state. So mindfulness is the first step in befriending the mind, seeing very clearly what's happening with as little reactivity as possible. But as Utejaniya likes to say, sometimes mindfulness alone is not enough. It's not strong enough at that point to withstand the power of the afflictive thoughts and emotions. So we're fortunate that the Buddha gave us a whole range of different tools to work with. And in particular, some of the practices that I haven't been into in too much detail yet, but the Brahma-Vihara practices those meditations that directly cultivate skillful states such as kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, mudita or appreciative joy, and upeka or equanimity. And these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are very beneficial as antidotes to afflictive states when they have come up. For example, if we're getting caught in some kind of self-judgment or self-criticism, then taking a session of meditation to consciously orient to self-compassion can be very helpful in releasing the pain of that state. Or if perhaps we're experiencing a lot of resentment at somebody else's good fortune, then practicing joy or mudita can help us incline towards gratitude and contentment instead of jealousy. So I'll be going more into these four states later on in the retreat, but just to say that not only do they act as antidotes, if they're practiced regularly, they're also like sort of boosters for our emotional immune system, a bit like a daily dose of vitamin C, So when we're able to cultivate that sort of resilience of heart and mind that comes from these practices, we're much less reactive to the inevitable pricks and pokes and frustrations of daily life. It's like practicing the Brahma-Viharas somehow smooths the heart and mind so the afflictive states can't get their claws into us quite so easily. And even though these practices are usually taught as um, concentration practices, in my experience they are also very powerful wisdom practices, particularly in relation to anatta. So the key insight that taking things personally is a cause of suffering. And in relation to that, there's an aspect of these practices that isn't always... uh, so well known, I just heard about it recently, that these four qualities are also sometimes referred to as apamana states. And apamana is a word that means boundless or measureless or immeasurable. So you may be familiar with the Brahma-Viharas being taught as becoming completely unconditional without limits. And that's coming from this term apamana. And this Pali term apamana is interesting because it has a relationship to the word mana, which is very different than it is in Maori, but it more literally in Pali means to measure or to compare. So apamana literally means beyond measuring, not comparing. 
which is not how we usually relate to ourselves or each other. But in the Buddha's teachings, any kind of measuring or comparing is wrong view because it leads to false distinctions of superiority, of inferiority, and even thinking ourselves equal to. And in the Buddha's teachings, thinking oneself as less than others is seen as a form of conceit, just as much as thinking oneself superior. So when I first heard that, it really challenged some deep conditioning. And I decided to try and take it on as a practice. So just as I would feel repelled by making myself superior, I tried to see negative self-talk as equally distorted and harmful. And over time, it did help to release those deeply conditioned, harsh and self-critical thought patterns. So with practice, then, these four Brahmavihara or Apamana states can really help to release the habit of comparing of assessing, of judging, of measuring, so that we can dwell more and more in the sublime states of kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy and equanimity. And those skillful qualities start to become our default setting. So this process of befriending the mind is not just a psychological process of understanding our emotional and mental habits, It actually leads all the way to the highest happiness, the peace of Nibbāna, which is the deepest possible freedom that the Buddha discovered in his liberation. And we too can train ourselves to experience moment by moment as we befriend our minds more and more fully. So on that note, thank you for your kind attention. Let's just take a moment of silence and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.